Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. The title of the following selection is Rhythms of Spiritual Longing. I miss you like waves without ocean, like seeds without earth, like faith without devotion, like life without birth. Oh, what is this secret coursing through me, this gentle raging surf? I miss you like deserts without sands, like bodies without souls like drummers without hands, like beggars without bowls. Shall I find an oasis of truth or a mirage in my soul? I miss you like books without an end, like races without a start, like curves without a bend, like paintings without art. Will you disclose to me why I am in the essence of my heart? I miss you like courage without fears, like flowers without rain, like prayers without tears, like mirrors without a tain. Will you whistle past my stop, like some distant midnight phantom train? I miss you like knowledge without depth, like vision without sight, like length without breadth, like spectrums without light. Will you show me how Love is like a butterfly's chaotic flight. I miss you like sin without mercy, like wings without the sky, like locks without a key, like attics without a high. If your wide door opens to me, will there be a smile or a sigh? I miss you like wars without strife, like letters without stamps, like nature without life like bridges without ramps. Trumpets play taps for souls lost to the treachery of their own camps. I miss you like gnosis without bliss, like needles without thread, like lips without a kiss, like the poor without bread. What meaning can be given 
when a life hangs between hope and dread. I miss you like ships without the seas, like planets without a sun, like forests without trees. I miss you when all is said and done. This week's short story is entitled Fantasy. The professor had thought about this decision for months. He had been close to following through on his plan a dozen or more times, only to lose courage at the last minute. Now, once again, he was staring his demons down in the middle of the night. A faculty meeting had been scheduled for the morning, and he wanted to speak his heart to the assembly. Yet the message of his heart had real consequences for him as an individual. Moreover, there was no assurance anyone else would go along with him on the matter. In fact, by the end of the meeting, he probably would be like the sound of one hand clapping. The only question remaining is whether there was going to be a right-handed or left-handed clap. Based on hundreds of conversations he had with fellow colleagues across the years, he knew that in their heart of hearts, many faculty members thought as he did. However, there often is a huge divide between the thinking of something and its doing. Sometimes this is for the better. Sometimes it is a source of shame. He had rehearsed the situation in his mind's eye so frequently, he feared a great deal of spontaneity and passion might have been lost. And these two factors could play an important role in helping dissuade some of his colleagues to accompany him on this. Perhaps quixotic quest, nevertheless, he went through the process one more time. Following the usual order of such meetings, new business would be sought from the chairperson. That would be the time to stand up and be counted. He would turn around, face his friends and associates, and begin to speak. He would search for his rhythm, perhaps stumbling a little at first, an orator he was not. My fellow colleagues, I stand before you today as an individual who is being haunted. The ghost of my conscience has been keeping a vigil for quite some time, hoping I would sum up the necessary resolve to do that which is needed. I remember how excited and happy I was when the idea of being a teacher first alighted on the surface of my consciousness. I was captivated by the idea of helping people to find themselves, to learn about issues of identity, purpose, meaning, truth, integrity, commitment, justice, and happiness, all the issues which tug at the core of our beings, the issues which bed down with us at night and rise with us in the morning. But today, and really for some time now, the initial idea that seemed to be calling to me asking for my service, appears to have been transformed into something entirely different, as if I have been under attack from an invasion of the body snatchers that has taken my soul from me and left something else behind, something which looked like me, talked like me, acted like me, and yet something from which a certain dimension of humanity has been lost or removed.
In high school, I was fortunate enough to have spent time with one of those rarest of specimens, a teacher who actually knows something, not about information or this or that set of data, or how to do experimental work, which to a greater or lesser extent all of us have an understanding of sorts, but a teacher who not only knows about life, but has a deep, passionate insight into all that life entails. That teacher taught me a great deal, much of which, I am sad to say, has been put on some existential shelf to gather dust along with my books and journals. There is one teaching, however, which came to me from my former mentor that keeps coming back to me and which, more and more, makes looking in a mirror a very difficult activity for me to do. The teaching, as all great jewels of wisdom are, was both simple and profound. More specifically, I was urged by this high school teacher not to attend the circle of any learned individual unless that person requests me to give up five things in favor of five other things. Namely, I should be asked to give up doubt in favor of faith, hypocrisy in favor of sincerity, worldliness in favor of asceticism, pride in favor of humility, and enmity in favor of love. I regret to say that in many ways I have turned into precisely the kind of learned person about whom my high school teacher had warned me to stay away from. And I would like to share with you briefly some of why I feel this way. Skepticism can be an important tool which enables one to cut away a great deal of theoretical drivel, but it is a tool with a blind spot. The nature of that blind spot is we are very rarely ever skeptical about skepticism, nor are we skeptical about our own ideas, opinions, theories, ideas, priorities, and values as we tend to be skeptical in relation to the ideas and opinions of others that challenge our own cherished beliefs. All too frequently, skepticism is a device for attacking someone or something rather than serving as just one tool among many, which can be used for helping to uncover the truth. The goal is not to end with skepticism, but to use skepticism judiciously as a mode of transportation towards wisdom, and then, as necessary, modify our use of skepticism in order to refine our search for truth rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as we inevitably end up doing, when we insist that the one unshakable tenet of faith which everyone must adopt is to be skeptical about anything and everything, even the truth, even wisdom. I keep asking myself, what do I have faith in these days? I have plenty of beliefs, opinions, understandings, and interpretations. But do I have faith in any of these things? And the answer, unfortunately, is no. I end up giving my students a hodgepodge of half-baked theories, pieces of information, the latest fad and methodology, and try to convince them that upon completing my course they will have become educated individuals. And if they are so foolish as to not accept my concept of an educated person, well, 
insult is added to injury because I assign them grades in order to be able to punish them for the rest of their lives if they don't see things my way. My high school teacher taught me that faith is not blind. In fact, it must not be blind, for if it is, then it is mere belief, not faith. Faith is probing, inquiring, curious, exacting, relentless, critical of ignorance, dynamic, but faith can do something which skepticism and doubt cannot do. Faith can embrace and love the truth where that truth becomes manifest. Faith can live in harmony with doubt, but the reverse is not true. I teach my students to doubt everything, to have faith in almost nothing. By doing this, I perpetrate a great injustice against my students. I speak with my students about wisdom, justice, truth, morality, and yet very little of what I teach is put into practice by me. I teach them do as I say, not as I do. And why would anyone in her or his right mind want to follow someone who is a hypocrite and fails to practice what is preached? Like so many pieces of worship, and indeed academia has become the new home of the high priests and priestesses who promulgate a theology of rationalism. I give my sermons, and then as soon as I leave the classroom behind me, all that had been mentioned is forgotten. Rarely do I want to examine the gulf between what I say as a teacher and what I do as a teacher. To give just one example, I know grading to be an inherently immoral act, which is antithetical to all we know about how and why people learn. We grade people because we want to be able to control them and to use them for our purposes. Grades are the great stick we hold over every student's head, which says, in effect, if you don't accept our idea of what constitutes an educated person, you will be punished and your lives will be adversely affected. Yet I continue to assign grades. Why? Not because I believe grades assist learning, because it really doesn't. And there is much experimental data to prove this, which we conveniently hide from students and from ourselves. I assign grades because I fear losing my job. I continue to assign grades because I want my students to put aside the lesson of skepticism and to have faith in a system that cannot stand up to critical scrutiny. I assign grades because I wish to continue to have the privilege of being a hypocrite and to be paid very nicely for being one. I have forgotten how to be sincere with my students or my colleagues or with the world in general. My life is buried in so many lies to myself and others that I seem unable to interact with anyone anymore from my heart rather than from a personal agenda concerning my own career or self-interest, and too bad for everyone else. Part of my role as a teacher is to counsel students. I counsel them about how to create a career, how to make the decisions which will enable a student to have a good chance of obtaining those positions that will lead to advancement, higher pay, more power, enhanced social status, professional competence, and so on. I counsel them about the academic version of the good life. I counsel them that everyone should aspire to more money and or more possessions. 
However, I never have an answer for how a world of limited resources is going to be able to supply everyone's expectations or how we are going to solve the environmental problems that accompany elevated demands for goods and services when we cannot even deal with the ecological damage which is accruing presently. Instead, I teach students that life is a zero-sum game in which there are winners and losers, and if you want to be the former or avoid being the latter, then you have to position yourself at the expense of your fellow human beings. I tell students this is a basic law of life, but I hide the skeptical slide rule from view so that they won't begin to question whether life really must be played as a zero-sum game, or so they won't begin to critically reflect on what the inevitable end game of such a process must be. I don't counsel my students about gaining mastery over their egos, emotions, or desires. I stoke the fires of ambition, selfishness, greed, or fame. Yet I and others consider me to be a responsible human being for doing this. How could I do otherwise since I don't have mastery over myself? I counsel people according to what I know. Yet, much to my deep regret, what I know is not true self-discipline. That is, a discipline of abiding by the truth, a discipline of being fair, kind, generous, compassionate, empathetic, tolerant, forgiving, and loving of others, a discipline of modesty and moderation. But rather, what I know and therefore what I counsel is ambition, selfishness, greed, and career recognition. I'm proud of my academic accomplishments, and therein lies the problem. Instead of being humble before my own ignorance, instead of having humility in light of all the many things which I don't know or understand, I have wrapped my pride about me like a coat of armor to keep the truth of the matter from penetrating my inner being. My pride is the roar of a delusion that signifies nothing of importance. My pride is the actor who childishly refuses to give up center stage and who needs to bask in the adulation of others to feel alive and have a sense of identity, an identity which withers away into nothingness, a terrible, empty nothingness, as soon as one leaves the glow of the spotlight. I loved my high school teacher for, among other things, his humility. He was the wisest of human beings, and yet he lived a life of elegant humility. My pride is a dance of not-so-quiet desperation, which seeks to be remembered, if not loved, and the likelihood is that neither will be the case. My high school teacher used to say that poverty is my pride, and although arriving at an understanding of some of what is meant, by that statement has taken considerable time. I have come to realize he was talking about his sense of self-awareness. He was devoid of ego, and yet he was incredibly aware of life. He was happy with his impoverished sense of self-absorption. He was content with his anonymity. My sense of self is a sin with which none other can compare. It gets in the way of everything, including my ability to teach students about the importance of humility and the dangerous sickness which is inherent in pride. Pride does go before the fall. The ego knows this, but 
is in love with itself and does not wish to let go of its delusions and therefore fights tooth and nail both against oneself and others to hold on to pride because for the ego there is nothing worse than the fall into sincere humility and selflessness. Finally, against the advice of my high school teacher, I have been teaching my students the subtle nuances of enmity rather than love. I have taught them to hate one another as they vie for grades, jobs, and recognition. I have taught them to hate and ridicule approaches to truth that are different from mine. I have taught them to hate faith, sincerity, self-mastery, truth, and humility. I have taught them to pay lip service to diversity, but harbor a subtle subtext of contempt, arrogance, and superiority concerning other ways of life, other forms of wisdom, other ways of acquiring truth. I have taught them to hate that which is transrational and induce them to force-fit the universe into square holes of rationality, irrespective of whether or not the universe fits. I have taught them to hate themselves and to sell their souls for grades, careers, and acclaim, to forget finding out who they really are or what the purpose of life is or what their essential potential is. I have taught them that these are all frivolous pursuits that can be fooled around with once the important matters of life, such as career, have been secured and life has become materially comfortable. In short, I have taught them to hate learning and tried to convince them that education and real learning are one and the same, when they are not the same and have not been the same for a very long time. So where do all of these considerations leave me? I feel there is only one conclusion which can be drawn from the foregoing, and that is, I must resign my post from the university, and I implore others of you who feel as I do to do so as well. When the time arrived for this latter portion of his comments to be put forth, the part concerning his decision to resign, the professor hoped there might be others who would stand with him. Perhaps if enough faculty members listened to their conscience as he was trying to, a movement in the direction of bringing sanity, morality, and justice to the halls of higher learning might become established. But the professor also realized this was just a fantasy, and in all likelihood, no one would stand up with him, just as he probably would never give the talk which he had rehearsed in his mind so many times. Not because what he felt was untrue, but precisely because it was true. Just as the law usually has nothing to do with justice, education often has nothing to do with truth since few people wish to pay the costs associated with following a curriculum committed to seeking, finding, and God willing, applying to their own lives whatever truths might have been discovered. For all too many people, truth, pursuing truth, and living in accordance with truth about a fantasy. Better to stick with the realities of doubt, hypocrisy, worldliness, pride, and enmity the professor's high school teacher would have been saddened by this truth. But his high school teacher would have understood, in spite everything, he would have retained a tolerant, loving, empathetic, encouraging compassion for the professor, hoping upon hope that the professor would find it within himself to be a better man than the latter had permitted himself to become.
The title of today's musical interlude is Tenderness. past is just a memory, and the future is but a possibility. How imperceptibly the present fades into what will never be again, as it becomes immersed in the mists of not-yet-realized possibilities. You are listening to the transitory, fleeting, perishable, fragment-filled remnants of the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Well, I suppose all offers can be refused, so I'll amend my opening statement and simply say, I'm going to make you an offer that I hope you won't refuse. I would like to offer you free, and I do mean free, access to all 40 books that I have written, plus 35 pieces of floetry that were composed over the years, as well as five videos and some podcast recordings covering different topics. This is all contained in the Bridge software that is available through my website, www.anab-lawrence.com. 
Whitehouse, W-H-I-T-E-H-O-U-S-E dot com. If you go to my website, click the Bridge Software Choice on the drop-down menu one option, and then discover how to download the Bridge Software for free, no strings attached. My hope is that you will like what you find in the software, and Therefore, we'll be willing to come back and participate in my Patreon campaign to give books to various libraries. But even if you have no interest in supporting the foregoing Patreon campaign, nonetheless, the Bridge software is still yours to have for your personal reading, listening, and viewing experience. Today's meditative essay is titled, Baka. Deep within us, there is a longing for permanence and stability. We dream of a place or condition in which we can feel completely at rest in some fundamental way. In our heart of hearts, we fervently hope that an abiding, essential sense of peace and security will somehow come into our lives and embrace us. We scan the horizons within us and around us for some trace of the very archetype, as it were, in which the idea of home, in the best sense of the term, is rooted. This deep sense of longing or dreaming or hoping shadows us for much, if not all, of our lives. It is pervasive and persistent and yet seems like a will-o'-the-wisp which cannot be pinned down in any concrete, determinate manner. We have a feeling we might be able to recognize the object of this longing if we were ever to come face to face with it. However, in the meantime, the longing just manifests itself as an ineffable emptiness waiting to be filled, or as an amorphous cosmic alienation waiting to be dissipated. Many of the activities we pursue throughout our lives are actually attempts to satisfy the aforementioned longing. We entertain a wide variety of candidates during the course of our existence on earth. We seek to derive experiences of essential belonging to different organizations, groups, political parties, institutions, and communities. We try to resolve the longing through relationships, marriage, sexual intimacy, and families. We look to careers to fill the emptiness which haunts our waking hours. Sooner or later, most of us discover that none of the foregoing, either individually or in combination, are capable of satisfying our longing. As a result, many of us pursue activities which will either anesthetize the pain or distract us from such pain. Thus, some of us drink to excess and take drugs. Some of us become promiscuous. Some of us take up hobbies. Some of us become sports fanatics. Some of us gamble. Some of us go shopping. Some of us become inveterate partygoers or fitness buffs. Some of us busy ourselves in our work and so on. Sometimes we plunge into these sorts of activity as a kind of distant consolation. In other words, they don't necessarily quench the longing inside, but we find them enjoyable and perhaps even satisfying in certain ways. Many of us, for the most part, have given up on ever finding a way to resolve our essential longing. Therefore, we try to find whatever small consolations in life we can and let it go at that. In addition, due to our lack of success in locating the key or keys that will unravel the puzzle of unrequited longing, many of us gravitate towards bitterness, frustration, and disillusionment. 
as a result become prone to depression and cynicism. Furthermore, since many of us are ill at ease with ourselves due to our feelings of alienation from things in general, as a result of our inability to experience a sense of being at home within ourselves and within the universe, many of us become easily annoyed with other people. Consequently, we tend to become involved in endless rounds of bickering, conflict, and disputations. Most of us may not even have any inkling why we do these things. They kind of just happen. We have plenty of rationalizations, but no real answers. In fleeting moments of reflection, we may feel the reverberations of the longing. However dimly we understand its significance, we often sense that satisfying such hunger is the key to many of our problems. Yet the solution to our dilemma remains as elusive as ever. Time moves on. The reverie evaporates before our eyes. We long for stability and permanence, but we are inundated by transience and instability. Whatever happiness we find, it does not last. Whatever joy we find, it comes to an end. Whatever peace we stumble onto is but a brief reprieve in the eye of life's storms. Like a roller coaster, our lives creep ever so slowly up the track to that first peak. Childhood and adolescence seem to last forever. Suddenly our stomachs slam into our throats, and the descent of our lives takes us careening down the track through a few twists and turns to the end of the line. We cannot get off, we cannot stop it, we only get one ride. Desperately we try to make sense of the ride. However, this is very difficult to do because everything is changing so quickly. Moreover, almost all of our attention and energies are spent screaming and trying not to regurgitate our lunch. The Sufi masters indicate that essential permanence or baka can be realized if God wishes under certain circumstances or conditions. The Sufi path gives expression to these circumstances and conditions. To find permanence and stability in the midst of fluctuation, one must permit God, through the exercise of one's free will, to remove everything except the will of God from one's soul, heart, and essential being. God alone is permanent. Consequently, everything which veils the presence of such permanence must be dissolved. The guidance of the Sufi masters, the practices, the moral training, the struggle, the litanies, and so on, are all supports provided by God to assist the individual to work towards permanence. Permanence is realized when the true self is and the false self is not. Only the true self is capable of giving expression to the will of God in an undistorted fashion. Only the true self is capable of participating in the quality of permanence. Only the true self has the capacity for essential and complete servitude before God. Only the perfect servant is able to reflect the will of God as God wishes it to be reflected through such a capacity. God desires permanence for us. This is so because through permanence human capacity realizes its purpose and potential as an expression of God's will. The reality of permanence cannot be described. It can only be experienced. Nonetheless, the experience of permanence colors, directs, shapes, informs, and orients everything which the individual thinks, says, feels, does, and is. This is what is entailed by those whom abide in God's permanence, 
and as a result, journey with and by divinity. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Thank you.